So we continue. This is our third session on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to do a slight reintroduction because I'm aware that we have um, quite a different crowd in today. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's manifesto. If you look at all of our political parties, they have a manifesto. Yep, you read it and then they do something totally different. So their manifesto doesn't kind of define um, what they're really going to do. But for Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount is actually really important. There are five discourses that are recorded in the Gospels that Jesus make. And if you put those together, you end up with a very comprehensive manif manifesto of what Jesus is about. Um, I've been reading um, a book, you know, I read an occasional book. I've been reading a book. Those of you who are readers, this is a really good book. It is the, sermon, the Message of the Sermon on the Mount by John Stott. John Stott is just epic. Um, anything by him just is amazingly challenging. Uh, and John Stott says the Sermon on the Mount is counterculture. It flows against the grain of modern culture in terms of how people should behave. He says that the key kind of thought in the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 6 verse 8 where Jesus says about the world, do not be like them. And in our age, that's really difficult. You know, my, my daughter's going to high school this year. Uh, my son's uh, got a couple of years left in primary school. And we as a family feel the challenge of not being like the world around us. And it's getting harder. Yeah, it's getting harder in terms of language. I don't know if you've caught up recently, but they're looking at changing the, the certification on movies because they're arguing that everybody's swearing now, therefore all of it should have swearing in, which I think is absolutely appalling. And I write, well, I don't, so why do I have to listen to it? So we are to be different from the world, and this sermon of Jesus highlights that. It highlights a distinctiveness of God's people. Now, if you read the Old Testament, that was always there. They were to be different. They were not to be the same. And the challenging point is that we are supposed to be different. Now, what makes this even more challenging is that when Jesus compares how we are to be different, he doesn't pinpoint people who are unbelievers, he pinpoints the religious. He says, don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were the equivalent of today's scholars and theologians. Yeah? The Pharisees are the equivalent of the laity, the guys like me and stuff. Yeah? Those were the scribes and Pharisees. And the irony is Jesus didn't say, don't be like Herod, don't be like Pontius Pilate. He says, don't be like this scholar and don't be like these pastors. And I think, wow, it blows your mind. But it is very poignant for us because we need to be very careful that we don't just live a religious life, but that we live a life that pleases God. Now, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, at first glance, it appears to be unattainable. I don't know whether you've read that through. It's all the way from, from Matthew 5 through uh, 7, chapter 5 to chapter 7. Read that through and you think, I can't do this. And because it is sometimes so challenging, many believe that it's just an ideal. 
We can't actually live it. We are to pursue this ideal. It's not a reality that we can obtain to live in. However, John Stott and a lot of the other guys argue that Jesus is talking to disciples. He's not talking to the world here, although the world is listening and he throws out the invitation. He is talking to his disciples. If you look at the very beginning of chapter 5 or the end of chapter 4, Jesus calls his disciples together. He's talking to disciples. What does that mean? That there is a recognition that if you don't believe in Jesus, you will find it impossible to live like this. No matter how hard you try, you will not achieve it. It means that we have to be a follower of Christ. I'm going to read to you what John Stott says, because he puts it so well. When he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount, he says, they are, uh, they are attainable, all right, but only by those who have experienced the new birth, which Jesus told Nicodemus was the indispensable condition of seeing and entering God's kingdom. For the righteousness he describes in the sermon is an inner righteousness, although it manifests itself outwardly and visibly in words, deeds, and relationships. Yet it remains essentially a righteousness of the heart. It is what a man thinks in his heart and where he fixes his heart which really matters. It is here too that the problem lies. For men are in their nature evil. It is out of their heart that evil things come and out of their heart that their mouth speaks, just as it is the tree which determines its fruit. So there is but one solution. Make the tree good and its fruit will be good. A new birth is absolutely essential. And so when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we are starting from a point of view that we are believers. If we're not believers, we need to first come to Jesus for forgiveness and that new life. You know, I find it a massive challenge that we are to live in a way that is counter to our culture. And the reason I find it a massive challenge is that over the years, a lot of what I have heard is that we are to kind of fit in. We kind of fit in and be salt and light in that way, but actually it just doesn't work. Uh, probably the best example would be if we looked at how the Israelites lived in Israel as the called people. Whenever they mingled in with other people groups, they ended up disobeying God. They adopted lifestyles that were bad, behaviors that were bad. And very sadly, our Western culture endorses so many things that the Bible says are not good and are wrong. And we're not just talking about just because the Bible says it. Remember, the stuff that Jesus teaches is important because it helps us to have the best possible life. God doesn't just want us to obey a whole load of rules through gritted teeth. He's saying to us, if we live according to the Sermon on the Mount, we will have the best possible kind of life that we could possibly have. We need to recognize that the Sermon on the Mount is not possible without Jesus. And I wonder whether that was the point of it. You know, when we look at it, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, 
Blessed are those who hunger. Those are all kind of negative aspects, but they come out of the fact that we see how Jesus wants us to live and we recognize we can't do it. We cannot consistently live a righteous life and therefore it brings us to a point where we say, Jesus, we can't do this. We need your help. And he says, I'm glad you've come to that position. I'm glad you are spiritually poor because now I can fill you with all the goodness of God. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is not a path to salvation. We are not saved by doing the things that it talks about, but it is an expectation of the life of a follower of Jesus. So when somebody said, Jesus, forgive my sin, come into my life, you are now my Lord, there is an expectation that their behavior changes and begins to reflect what the Sermon on the Mount talks about. This flies in the face of how grace is taught today. I'm really saddened that a lot of the teaching on grace on YouTube and some of these what I would call liberal theologians is all about uh, you can live how you like and God will forgive it all in the end because that's grace. That is not grace. Grace is that God empowers us to live the kind of life that would be impossible without his grace. His grace makes that possible. Do we earn that grace? No, we do not. We receive that when we have faith in Jesus Christ. He supplies the grace. You know, the Apostle Paul had some form of problem in his life that he asked Jesus three times to take away. And Jesus' response was, my grace is sufficient. And then he says, because my power is perfect when it works in weakness. I keep using my children as examples, so you guys have to forgive me for a moment. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody needs to do something and you want them to do it, but you know they're going to make a complete mess of it and you'd prefer to do it for them? You ever been in that situation? The kids say, hey, can I crack the eggs in the pan today? And you know that half of the egg is going to be over the flame and on the floor. And not, not that, that mine have done that um, to that degree, but, but you understand. And so God's power doesn't work when we try to do it in our own strength. It only works when we completely rely and trust in him to supply that strength and to work through. And so the whole Sermon on the Mount is a recognition, this is how we're supposed to live. We can't really do it. We turn to Jesus and he says, now here's my grace, go and live like this. The world looks at it and marvels and say, how can I live that? And we lead them back to Jesus and they also receive grace and begin to live like that. That is how society has been transformed historically. If you read through history, if you look, for instance, at the time when the French had a revolution, you know, the, the, the Great Britain at that point was also in a position where it was going to have a revolution, but a man called John Wesley stopped it by the preaching of the gospel. And as people turned to Jesus and their behavior changed, the revolution here was uh, uh, averted. And we see that so often in historical context where God has worked. 
During the Welsh revivals in the early 1900s, there were areas in Wales where they had to sack the police because there was nothing for them to do because people's behaviour had changed. Pubs shut, people weren't getting drunk anymore, they weren't drinking. That whole area of business in some ways became like the hospitality industry in the pandemic. Nobody was going. And it wasn't caused by a political change. It was caused by a spiritual change. By an accepting of Jesus and by an empowering of the Spirit so that they lived in a certain way. So we start with this. Last week I spoke about uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, recognizing that we are spiritually poor. It's not about physical, material poverty, although that can lead to this. It's talking about a spiritual poverty. John Stott says, at first, to be poor meant to be in literal material need, but gradually, because the need had no refuge but God, poverty came to have spiritual overtones and to be identified with humble dependence on God. That our life on this earth is in humble dependence on God. We can be the richest people in the land, we can be the poorest people in the land, it doesn't matter. We still need to live a life that is in humble dependence upon God. And when we move out of that position, we will begin to see a failure in living the Sermon on the Mount. Because once we try to do it back in our own strength, it begins to fail. We need to make sure that we come in poverty of spirit. There is the, 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 the stanza of a song that says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the, thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I fly, sorry, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me saviour or I die. This is the language of the poor in spirit, those who understand that they can bring nothing but their faith. You know, faith is the only thing we can bring. We have no deeds. You read the whole New Testament, faith is the only thing that we can bring to Jesus, and faith is all that he requires. And faith isn't just believing. Faith is an allegiance to Jesus that means that our allegiance to everything else is now ended. I need to say that because sometimes people think faith is just, I have to believe it hard enough. It's not about believing hard enough. It is about changing your allegiance to yourself, to the world, to all kinds of things that pull our attention and saying my allegiance is now completely to Jesus. Now that is the narrow path. It is a hard path, but it leads to eternal life. The second area is blessed are those who mourn, pardon me, for they shall be comforted. Jesus always starts with this word blessed. Now, I'm not sure the word blessed is properly defined today. You know, people see a small child and go, oh, bless. And, but I'm not really sure we understand blessing. And the reason I, I don't think we understand it is because we don't bless people anymore. The one thing we understand is cursing, because I can hear that every single day. But blessing 
And blessing is essentially this idea that God's favour rests upon us. That God is favourably disposed towards us. And this is the bit that's really important. When Jesus said, blessed are they who, and he gives that condition, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. When he says blessed, it is a condition that they possess irrespective of how they feel. Now, why do I say that? Because God's blessing is not based on your performance or your earning. It is based on your faith in Jesus and him saying, I will put that blessing upon you. We are Pentecostals and the challenge of Pentecostalism is that we are very entrenched in experience. Pentecostalism was born out of an experience of God. The problem is experience is a very poor foundation for theology, for, for truth, because everybody will have a different experience. And so we need to make sure that we believe truth, which is why God's given us the Bible. And the truth is this. Whether you feel blessed today or not is that if you have given your allegiance to Jesus, you are blessed. You don't need to feel it. You are loved by God today, whether you feel loved or not. Because God has decreed that all those who turn to him, he loves, they are his children. You are his child today. You don't have to feel it. I would hazard a guess sometimes my kids wake up and they think, I wish I wasn't part of this family. But no matter how much they feel that, they will always be part of the family because that's just how it is. And because God has called us, because Jesus has died for our sin, because we have repented and we've given allegiance to Jesus, that means we are part of his family no matter how we feel. That's a good thing. You can wake up depressed, you can wake up happy, you are still in the family of God. You are still loved. You are still important to Jesus Christ and you are still blessed. His favour is still towards you. When we look at this area of blessed are those who mourn, they mourn because things have been lost. You know, we mourn when we lose a loved one. John Stott says, it is plain from the context that those here uh, promised comfort are not primarily those who mourn the loss of a loved one, but those who mourn the loss of their innocence, their righteousness, their self-respect. It is not the sorrow of bereavement to which Christ refers, but the sorrow of repentance. This is the second stage of spiritual blessing. It is, the, it is one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it. It is another thing to grieve and mourn over our sin. And there's a bit of a challenge there. You know, loss brings mourning and, and mourning pulls us down. But actually, do we lament over our wrongdoing? You see, if we make grace so easy, if we say God's going to forgive it all anyway, we're going to hit this thing that we belittle sin. And we say it doesn't really matter. But it does matter. 
If you read through the history of Christianity, if you read through the history of the Old Testament, if you look at 6,000 years of human beings, you will find those that were connected to God wept before God because of their sin. Not only did they weep about their own sin, but they also wept about the sin of the, the city around them. You look at Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. You look at Jesus helping people because he was filled with compassion. And there is a danger as believers that we become hard of heart and that we curse the world for its wickedness rather than weeping over it. And I would say in the same vein that actually we weep over our own sin, that we demonstrate a godly grief. I always look, you know, when people say, oh, I want to follow Jesus, I always look whether there is a godly grief that leads to repentance. If it's just a decision that's mentally in the mind, that's not enough. There needs to be a conviction in our hearts that we have done wrong and that there is nothing we can do about it and we humbly come to Jesus. It's the kind of thing where you do something silly, you break something, you smash something, and you, you can't hide it. You come to the person and say, oh, I'm really sorry. Yeah, it was me. I did it. Now, here's the good news. Those who mourn over their sin, who mourn over the loss that they face, it says, they shall be comforted. Now, I want to focus on that for a moment because comfort allows us to triumph. Comfort brings solace and inner well-being. You know, there are two ways we can deal with things when people repent. We can make them feel really bad. Yes, you did break that. You know, woe you, don't ever do it again, blah, 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 blah. And people walk around. Or we can say, we see that you're really sorry. Don't worry about it. I'll sort it out. That's what Jesus says. He brings comfort that lifts us out and that ministers us out of these things. If you want to know how not to comfort, read the book of Job in the Bible. Because Job had some friends who came to comfort him. And Job says this about them. Miserable comforters are you all. Nobody wants that. We want people to bring comfort. You know, uh, I probably shouldn't mention his name because this will be out online later, but you know, David Shields uh, is par excellence on these things, you know. I've seen guys like Dave who can walk into a weeping household and come out and they're laughing and think, what did he do in there? I often think he takes that, that, that laughing gassing that the, the dentists have and he just lets it silently spray in the background. You know, there's a real gift in comforting. And the Bible says that we comfort with the comfort that we have received. But here's the good news. The, the person who comforts us is God himself. Are you mourning over your sin? Are you mourning over the fact that righteousness is lost in our nation? Are you struggling with how the world is? Well, you sit and allow God to come and bring comfort into your heart. God is the one who comforts us and strengthens us and he leads us through. I, I think these things are so important. So I want to encourage you today. God is for us. 
He does look for faith. He does expect us to live out the Sermon on the Mount, but he expects us to do that with the power that he supplies. Now, in reality, that means every day I need to come to Jesus. I loved what Mark shared earlier about reading the Bible and praying, because I know if I don't do that every day, if I don't draw strength from God every day, I won't do it. I will fail to live that life. You know, very often the difference to how I respond or react to something is how in the morning I have prepared my heart with God. Now, I know it's not always possible for people in the morning, but I would say to you that that there was a wise man who once said, why tune the fiddle at the end of the concert? We can spend time with God at the end of the day, but it's not as effective as the beginning of the day. And there is a challenge of sitting with God. If there's one thing this last year has really brought to the fore, that those who have remained strong in Christ are those who have been feeding themselves spiritually. They've been reading their Bible. They've been meditating on it. They've been talking to Jesus. And he has supplied the grace that has brought them through. And, And I want to encourage you, when you meet believers who have been broken over this time, help them to develop spiritual disciplines that will grow them. You know, there are many diseases in the world. You know, some people suffer with things like bulimia and anorexia, and part of that solution is helping them how to feed themselves properly, how to view themselves properly. And and there is a similar thing spiritually that we need to enable and help people in. And so I want to encourage you, God is for us. Do spend some time over this next week, um, over the next few weeks as we're going through this reading, through the Sermon on the Mount, and pray it through. You know, when I read it, I think, man, Lord, help me, help me to live like this. And day by day, we find that he will supply all that we need. I'm going to stop there and we will continue next week. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you because you help us to get through. And you know, just as we have our heads bowed and I'm praying this morning, mourning can have two outcomes. It can lead to bitterness of heart. Acts 8.23, where he says, For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound in wickedness. Or it can lead to a meek heart. And I want to pray this morning that as we mourn before God, that we receive his grace that is sufficient. Let me tell you this morning, whatever you're going through, God's grace is sufficient. We just need to be still and know that he is God. We need to give time to God. And I want to say that as a challenge to you today. Spend time with God, not fleeting moments but spend time where you are fully present with God and say, here I am, and develop that practice. And so, Lord, I pray for your people today. I pray God would bless you and keep you. I pray God would make his face shine upon you. I pray that in your heart you would know peace. And so, Lord, I dismiss your people this morning. Give them strength this week. Help us to be salt and light. And Father, in our inner man, strengthen us 
so that we are these strong men and women of God. And so, Lord, we thank you and bless you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.